U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I'm joined by Stephen the XO. Hey there, Stephen. Good morning. Hey there, everyone. How's it going today? So, when we last left off, was on a bit of a cliffhanger. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly. This is the Eastern Theater of the American Civil War, specifically in the Peninsula area, specifically the Battle of Hampton Roads. We left off when we were changing from March 8th to 9th of 1862. We had just had a ferocious battle between an ironclad and a bunch of wooden Union ships. And that went about as well as you'd expect. Yeah. So, we're going to jump right back into this battle. How's that sound? Sounds great to me. Let's cast off. Let's get underway. Both sides used the evening to repair, recuperate, and get ready to engage again the next day. The Virginia puts her wounded ashore and did her repairs. And since Captain Buchanan was among the wounded, his XO took command the next day. This was Lieutenant Caspi Roger Jones, and he was just as aggressive as Captain Buchanan. You know, he saw his captain being aggressive, and he's like, I like that. I'm going to do it myself. So while the Virginia was being prepared for renewal of hostilities, Congress is still burning ferociously. And the Monitor arrives in Hampton Roads. She is under the command of Lieutenant John L. Warden. Now, the Monitor was rushed down there because they hoped that she would protect the Union fleet and prevent the Virginia from threatening, you know, the cities around there. Mm -hmm. Because if the naval fleet can't do nothing, what do you think a shore installation is going to do? Well, they'll turn those guns around and start using them on land targets. Right, the shore installations aren't going to do diddly. Or that. <laughs> <laughs> so... Warden was told that his number one task was to protect the Minnesota. So the monitor takes up a position near the Minnesota and waits. You remember what the Minnesota's status was? Not great. She was a run aground. She was beached. So we have a quote from Captain Gershom Jacques Van Brunt. He says, quote, All on board felt we had a friend that would stand by us in our hour of trial. He wrote that of the monitor. So dawn comes up, and the Virginia gets underway and goes towards the Minnesota. She was followed by three other ships of the James River Squadron, and they found that there was something in their way. That something was the monitor. At first, Jones looked at it and said, that appears to be cheese on a raft. What? That's a direct quote. Uh, okay. 
let me take a look at the monitor again real fast as the resident cheese expert, since I'm from the cheese state. (laughs) Either they had very, very interesting looking cheese back in days of yore, or he was drunk on the grog. Well, I mean, they might have still been a little tipsy for celebrating their victory from the day before, but, uh... They thought that maybe it was a boiler being towed from the Minnesota. They just didn't get it through their heads that uh, they were facing another ironclad. Did they just assume the Union didn't have one? Some might have thought they didn't have one, or some might have thought that it just wasn't ready yet to be used, or just too far away to Mm. be used. But, you know, the Monitor's true identity would be revealed very quickly and then they were like well we have no choice we got to take her on so the first shot was fired by virginia at the monitor and this shot actually missed the monitor and hit the minnesota so minnesota was like -uh," (laughs) and fired a broadside and right back at you sir have at thee Right, exactly. So, you know, this is going to be a very lengthy battle. You know, ironclad versus ironclad. Mm -hmm. Van Brunt puts in another quote here. Again, all hands were called to quarters. And when she approached within a mile of us, I opened upon her with my stern guns and made a signal to the monitor to attack the enemy. So, the fight goes on for hours. Mostly at close range. And of course, both armor clads, armor was very quick to the job that was put forth before them because neither one of them could overcome the other. It was fire, fire, (laughs) both sides going after each other and just bouncing off the hole. Buchanan, he had not expected to fight another ironclad. So he didn't have any armor-piercing shot. He only had shells. Oh, bad time to be had. Yeah, and Monitor's guns were used with just the standard service charge of 15 pounds of gunpowder, which gave her projectiles insufficient momentum to penetrate the armor of Virginia. They did tests after the battle, and they found that her guns could be operated safely with charges of 30 pounds, so doubling the load, and that probably would have been sufficient to pierce the Virginia's hull. If they had known that during this battle, it would have turned out much differently. So the battle ends when a lucky shot from the Virginia struck the pilot house of the Monitor. And exploded. And there goes the command crew. Well, this drove fragments of paint and iron through all of the viewing slits into the temporary captain's eyes, blinding him. But only temporarily. Oh, that's good. Now, it also blinded everybody else, so nobody could see the con. So this means that the monitor had to draw off. The Temp XO, Lieutenant Samuel Dana Green, takes over and brings monitor back to the fight. 
Now, the Virginia, having seen the monitor draw off, was like, hey, look, we won. And then they looked at the Minnesota and saw that, well, she was still run aground. And the tide was going out, which means she's now out of reach. And, you know, we've actually did suffer some damage and we need repair. So since we won, let's just, you know, go back to Norfolk. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. So they leave right when Monitor comes back. <laughs> Whoopsie. So the Monitor sees Virginia's stern just sailing off into the distance. Da -da 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 -da, and said, hey, look, we won. They left. And since they only had orders to protect Minnesota and not, you know, risk their ship unnecessarily, Green made the decision not to pursue. So, because of all this, both sides claim victory. <laughs> I suppose that uh, who actually won wasn't really resolved until about 1865. I think by that time it really didn't matter. <laughs> For bragging rights. I mean, Monitor did succeed in her mission, so technically she did win. Virginia did not succeed in her mission. She did not destroy the Minnesota. So technically she did not win. So if you look at it that way, the Monitor won. Well, it took 160 years, but it's finally been resolved. You're welcome. So the Confederate Secretary of the Navy, a guy named Stephen Mallory... Any relation? No. Okay. He writes to the Confederate president, Mr. Davis, of what happened at the battle. He says, The conduct of the officers and men of the squadron reflects unfading honor upon themselves and upon the Navy. The report will be read with deep interest, and its details will not fail to rouse the ardor and nerve of the arms of our gallant seamen. It will be remembered that the Virginia was a novelty in naval architecture, wholly unlike any ship that ever floated, that her heaviest guns were equal novelties in ordnance, and her motive power and obedience to her helm were untried, and her officers and crew strangers comparatively to the ship and to each other, and yet, under all these disadvantages, the dashing courage and consummate professional ability of Flag Officer Buchanan and his associates achieved the most remarkable victory which naval annuals record. So, Washington also had a, a dispatch of their own. Congress writes their thanks. Quote, Resolved that the thanks of Congress and the American people are due and hereby tender to Lieutenant J.L. Warden of the United States Navy, and to the officers and men of the ironclad gunboat Monitor, under his command for the skill and gallantry exhibited by them in the remarkable battle between the Monitor and the rebel ironclad steamer Merrimack. So they didn't even get her name right. I'm going to say, either I was dozing or I thought that was the Virginia. Yeah, it's the Virginia. So during this two-day engagement... The Minnesota, she shot 78 rounds of 10-inch solid shot, 67 rounds of 10-inch solid shot with 15-second fuses, 169 rounds of 9-inch solid shot, 
180 9-inch shells with 15-second fuses, 35 8-inch shells with 15-second fuses, and 5,567 and a half pounds of powder. Three crew members were killed during the battle and 16 were wounded. That's a lot of shots. That is a lot of uh, cannonballs at the bottom of the sea for anyone looking to go fishing. Yeah, right there off of Hampton Roads. So after this, the Virginia, she stays in dry dock for, you know, about a month because she needed repairs. And they also took this opportunity to do some modifications to improve her performance. On April 4th, she leaves dry dock and Buchanan is still recovering from his wound and had hoped that uh, Jones would be picked to succeed him. Because, you know, most people believe that his performance during the battle was just outstanding. Unfortunately, the system in place for the Confederacy, which, you know, we've already established was absolute garbage. Yeah. Meant that he had no chance. So the captaincy went to a 67-year-old guy named Commodore Joshua Tattenall. Now, the monitor, on the other hand, she just stayed on duty. She did not get too much damage at all. Apparently, that shot to the pilot house just damaged the people and not the boat. Now, Green, he was told, you're too young to stay as captain. What? So the next day after the battle, they replaced him with Lieutenant Thomas O. Selfridge. And then two days later, they were like, uh, this guy, we don't want him. This is crap. Nope. Uh, send in Lieutenant William Nicholas Jeffers instead. So Jeffers went there and said, I'm the captain now. Respect my authority. Yeah. So by late March, the Union blockade fleet had been augmented by a lot of quickly refitted civilian ships, which included the SS Vanderbilt, the SS Argo, the SS Illinois, and the SS Ericsson. These boats had plows? No, you don't plow the ocean. These boats had rams and iron plating put on them. And by late April, the USS Nugatuck the USRCEA Stevens and the USS Galinda joins the blockade. And you want to know what type of ships these were? Sloops? Ironclads. Oh no. Oh yes. So, so just like the Virginia, the Monitor did not survive the war. She got orders to go to Beaufort, North Carolina on Christmas Day to take up a blockade there. And while she was being towed down the coast, under her fourth captain, Commander John P. Bankhead, what a name, (laughs) the wind started picking up. And with the wind comes the waves. And you've seen pictures of the monitor, I'm sure. Yeah. She doesn't have sides, really. No, not, not really. It's more like you put a a paper plate 
on the lake, and then you threw, uh, you know, cabins and a command tower on top of it. Yeah, so she quickly starts taking on a water. And soon the water that she was taking on was too much for the pumps to pump out. And this water puts out her engines because, you know, the engines are boilers. Boilers are fire. Water and fire, water wins. <laughs> and so the order is given to abandon ship. Most of the men were rescued by the USS Rhode Island, but 16 men did go down with the ship. So remember how I declared who was the actual victor, right? Right. The, there has been debates on that because, you know, both sides, they make immediate claims to victory because both were assuming what the other side was doing. So the present day historians, they agree that the monitor Merrimack encounter was a victory for neither side. All right. We'll call it a draw. No, I still believe my objective-based opinions are valid. I still call the victory for the Monitor. Anyway, back to the historians. The actual historians and not the armchair historians that we are. <laughs> the combat, they say, between the Ironclads was the primary significance of this battle seeing as this was really the first ironclad versus ironclad battle, period. Yeah. Everybody acknowledges that the rebel fleet inflicted so much more damage than it took. And there's no argument there. They, that happened. So this would imply that they had gained a tactical victory. Compared to other battles of the Civil War, the loss of men and ships for the Union Navy would be considered a clear defeat. But, on the other hand, the blockade was not seriously threatened. So the entire battle can be regarded as an assault that ultimately failed. So that is what, you know, the historians, the real historians say. But I still think I'm right. Well... When it comes down to it, I suppose we can get you to sit across from a PhD and you two can hash out and come to a settlement. Um, okay. I only know of one historian with a PhD, and he's actually been on the show before. You weren't able to make that one. That is that is true. That is true. And he he's fun to talk to. He was fun. <laughs> so that is the Battle of Hampton Roads. How was that entire battle for you? How do you like that? Uh, it was a seesaw of, I won, no, no, I won, nuh-uh, I won. All right, so... All right, so the next battle is the Battle of Drury's Bluff. This could also be known as the Battle of Fort Darling or Fort Drury. So, this took place May 15th, 1862 in Chesterfield County, Virginia. This is between five ironclads on the Union side, seven artillery pieces, one fort, and one shore battery on the rebel side. Hmm. The ships include the Monitor and Galena, both ironclads. So... 
on May 15th, the detachment of the Navy's North Atlantic Blockading Squadron steamed up from the James River from Fort Monroe because they wanted to test the Richmond defenses. So including the Monitor and Galena, they also had the Screw Gunship, Aerostook, and the Side Wheeler, Port Royal, and a twin screw ironclad, the Nougatuck. So at 0745, Galena comes to within 600 yards of the fort and throws her anchor out. Now, before Rogers, who is the commander of this fleet, is able to open fire, two Confederate rounds hit the lightly armored Galena. So that wasn't very nice, because they pierced her hull. Well, jerks. Yeah. So this battle lasts over three hours. And Galena, for some reason, just stays right where she's at and takes 45 hits. She had 14 dead and 10 wounded. Monitor was also a frequent target of the Confederacy, but she had a lot heavier armor and was able to withstand all of the shots at her. Hmm. But unfortunately, her guns could not get high enough elevation to fire on the Confederate batteries, which were 110 feet above the river. And the Nougatuck withdraws because her 100-pound Parrot rifle explodes. But what else are they going to use to hunt parrots with? I think a hundred pounder is a little bit overkill. So, a pea shooter? Yeah, but it just, it won't have the same, you know, razzle-dazzle, the same presence. Well, at least with the pea shooter, you can eat the parrot afterwards. An excellent point. (laughs) Now, the two wooden gunboats that they brought along, they stayed out of range of the big guns. But the captain of the Port Royal was wounded by a sharpshooter. Or a sniper. Ah, good old snipers in the Navy. So, around 1100, the Union fleet, just, they leave. They go to City Point. So, during this battle, a guy named Corporal John F. Mackey, he becomes the first Marine to earn the Medal of Honor. Really? Yes. His citation reads, because I actually have that, on board the USS Galena in the attack on Fort Darling at Drury's Bluff, James River on May 15, 1862. As enemy shellfire racked the deck of his ship, Corporal Mackey fearlessly maintained his musket fire against the rifle pits along the shore, and when ordered to fill vaccine, not vaccines. They don't. They didn't have those yet. They didn't believe. <laughs> no, them. it was inoculations, my lad. Inoculations <laughs> are the name of the game in this day and age. When ordered to fill vacancies at guns caused by men wounded and killed in action, man the weapon with skill and courage. He was born in 1836, New York, New York. So that's pretty cool. So the fort, you know, obviously stopped the Union advance seven miles short of the Confederate capital, in fact. And they had 
seven killed and eight wounded. So Richmond stays safe and Rogers reports to McLennan that it is feasible for the Navy to land troops about 10 miles from Richmond, but the Union Army never takes advantage of this observation. And the entire purpose of this expedition was to get that kind of information. But apparently that got their butts handed to them so bad that the area never again saw action during the siege of Peterburg, of Petersburg. So that is the Battle of Drury's Bluff. Not bad, not bad. Nice, short, and sweet. You like those, don't you? They are a nice refresher when we spend literally two episodes going over something. So that is the last battle of the Peninsula Campaign. As far as the Navy's concerned. Yeah. So we're going to move over to the Northern Virginia and Maryland area. So Lee had a lot of success against McKellen on the Peninsula. You can go back to the Peninsula era description to hear all about that. So... Lincoln, he reacts to this failure by appointing a guy named John Pope to command a newly formed Army of Virginia. Pope did achieve some success in the Western theater, and Lincoln, as you know, all these leaders at this time did, they wanted more aggressive people than the people they're first putting in charge, like McKellen. McKellen was not an aggressive guy. The Army of Virginia had over 50,000 men in, separated into three corps. Oh, wow. And they received an additional three corps from McKellen's army later, which would bring them up to six corps. And I'm not sure if the numbers changed in the uh, over century and a half. How many men is usually in a corps? Like 5,000? Well, if we just take these numbers... We bring out a handy-dandy calculator and go 50,000 divided by 3. That brings us to 16,666 repeating. All right, so each of these cores had one guy that was uh, missing a limb or something. <laughs> exactly. So two cavalry brigades were attached directly to two of the infantry corps, which this presented a lack of central control. And with a lack of central control, you have negative effects in the whole campaign. Pope's mission, he had two objectives. It was to protect Washington and the Shenandoah Valley, and also to draw Confederate forces away from McKellen by going in the direction of Gordonsville. So Pope, he starts on the McKellen goal by dispatching cavalry to break the railroad connection between Gordonsville and Charlottesville and Lynchburg. The cavalry, even though they got horses, they get off to a slow start. And when they get there, they find that Stonewall Jackson had actually occupied Gordonsville with 14,000 men. So Lee, he perceives that McKellen was no longer a threat to him on the peninsula. So he didn't feel that he had to keep all of his forces in direct defense of Richmond. So this allows him to, rel 
to relocate Jackson to Gordonville, which blocks Pope and protects the railroad. So because the Union Army was split between McKellen and Pope, they were separated by a huge distance, and Lee saw an opportunity to destroy Pope's forces before bringing his attention back on to McKellen. He believed that Burnside's troops from North Carolina were being taken over to Pope to reinforce him. Yeah. And so he was like, uh, we need to go over there immediately before they get there. So Lee takes Major General A.P. Hill and sends him to Jackson with 12,000 men. Oofta. Yeah. And this distracts, you know, McKellen and keeps him right where he's at. So Pope moves some of his men to a position near Cedar Mountain. And from there, he could launch raids onto Gordonsville. And then Jackson, he advances on Culpeper, hoping to attack one of Pope's corps before the rest of the army could be concentrated on that position. A couple of days later, Nathan Banks' corps attacks Jackson at Cedar Mountain and gets pretty far pretty quickly. But then, of course, Confederacy does a counterattack and drives him back across Cedar Creek. And, you know, by now, Jackson had learned that Pope's corps were, you know, together. So now he can't take them on one by one. So he just stays where he is until August 12th. And then he goes back to Gordonsville. Because, I mean, he really can't do much now. <laughs> so on the 13th, Lee sends Major General James Longstreet to reinforce Jackson. And the next day, he sends, he's like, you know what? Everybody except for you two brigades, you go over there. I want, I want you over there. Because McClellan, he's leaving, so I don't need you anymore. Go reinforce Jackson. And then Lee's like, you know what? I can go to Gordonsville, and I can take command. Of everything. I'm going to do that. He had come up with a plan to defeat Pope before McLennan's army could reinforce Pope's. He wanted to cut the bridges behind Pope and then attack Pope on his left flank and in the rear. Alrighty. But Pope, he's like, you know what? I'm going to do something, friend. I can see this coming a mile away. And he withdraws his line to the Rappahannock River. And he became aware of his plan because a Union cavalry raid captured a copy of Lee's written orders. So a series of small little battles between the 22nd and 25th of August keeps Pope's attention along the river. And by the 25th, the three corps from McKellen arrives and reinforces Pope. So Lee has to get out a new plan. Oh. <laughs> so Lee's new plan was to send Jackson and Stewart with half of the army 
in an attempt to flank Pope and cut his line of communication, which was the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. This would make Pope retreat, and when he's retreating and moving, he's vulnerable. We can take him when he's vulnerable. So on the 26th, the evening of the 26th, they pass around Pope's right flank, and Jackson's wing strike the railroad at Bristone Station just before daybreak. And on the 27th, they march and capture and destroyed a massive Union Supply Depot at Manassas Junction. This completely surprised Pope and forced him to leave his defensive line along the Rappahannock and move towards the Manassas Junction in hope of crushing Jackson's forces before the rest of Lee's army could reinforce them. So that night, Jackson marches his divisions north of the first Bull Run battlefield, where he takes up position behind a unfinished railroad grade, and Longstreet's wing of the army marches through a thoroughfare gap to join Jackson, uniting both wings of Lee's army. Which brings us to the second Bull Run. Ah, uh, yes, Bull Run 2, Electric Boogaloo. Yes. So, just briefly, in order to draw Pope's army into a battle, Jackson ordered a attack on a federal column that was passing across his front on the 28th, which begins the second battle of Bull Run. The fighting lasts several hours, and... Really, there's no winner. I'm not going to say who won there, because, you know, this isn't naval, this is army. And this convinces Pope that he had trapped Jackson, and so he concentrates the bulk of his army against him. The next day, Pope launches a series of assaults against Jackson's position along the unfinished railroad grade. And the attacks are eventually repulsed with heavy casualties on both sides. At noon, Longstreet arrives on the field and takes a position on Jackson's right flank. So everybody goes to sleep again. They're all tired and tuckered out from all this battling. So the next day, Pope renews his attack. He not, he was not aware that Longstreet arrived and was now on the field. And when the Confederate artillery in mass starts firing, it just devastates a Union assault. And then Longstreet's wing, which consisted of 28,000 men, counterattacked. This was the largest simultaneous mass assault of the war. This completely crushed the Union's left flank and the army was driven back. The Union's rear guard was the only thing preventing a replay of the first Bull Run disaster. Well, they learned from their mistakes. Right. And Lee didn't, arm, Lee didn't order pursuit until the next day. So Jackson, he makes a wide-flanking march. He was hoping to cut off the Union retreat, and on September 1st, he sends his divisions against two Union divisions, and this was the Battle of Chantilly. 
now Confederate attacks were stopped by, you know, just fierce, fierce fighting during, believe it or not, a severe thunderstorm. They were like, that doesn't sound like good conditions for a battle. No, it's not. But they did it anyway. And both Union division commanders were killed during this fighting. Pope looked around, said, my army's still in quite a lot of danger. Let's continue our retreat. And we're going to Washington. So after that, Lee decides it's time to invade Maryland. He took, he, you know, he took heavy losses during all of this fighting, but he thought he was ready for a challenge, which is the invasion of the North. His goal was to penetrate the major northern states of Maryland and Pennsylvania and to cut off the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad line that supplied Washington. But he also needed to supply his own army and knew that the farms of the north had been untouched by the war. So he's like, ooh, looting time. Good old five-finger discount. Yeah, because, you know, all the, all the farmland in Virginia had already been decimated. And, of course, he thought all of this would lower northern morale. Because, you know, an invading army wreaking havoc inside the northern territory. This might force Lincoln to negotiate an end to the war. Especially if he could incite an uprising in Maryland. So the Army of Northern Virginia, they cross the Potomac River and they reach Frederick, Maryland on the 6th of September. Now, his specific goals were going to be an advance towards Harrisburg, which is Pennsylvania. And this is going to cut the East and West Railroad links in the Northeast and then follow it on with operations against one of the major Eastern cities, such as, you know, Philadelphia. And, you know, this invasion did cause panic in the North. And Lincoln had to take quick action. Not the action Lee hoped for, but still action. McClellan had been in limbo from his disastrous actions during the Peninsula Campaign. But Lincoln says, I need you now, dude. You're going to do me a solid, right? You're going to be a good guy for me? And yeah, he... yeah, I can be a good guy. <laughs> and so he gives him command of all the forces around Washington and says, you, deal with Lee. I believe in you. You got this. Go get him. Fetch. <laughs> so Lee divides his army. He sends Longstreet to Hagerstown and Jackson to seize a Union arsenal at Harper's Ferry. This commanded Lee's supply lines through the Shenandoah Valley. And it's also, you know, a tempting target. It's pretty much undefendable. So McLennan requests permission from Washington to evacuate Harper's Ferry, because if he can't defend it, what's the point of losing people there? Right. So, I mean, that's, you know, pretty intelligent. That's that's a sensible thought, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he wanted to attach its garrison to his army. But Washington was like, no, we, we need to keep that. So 
hence ensues the Battle of Harper's Ferry. Jackson, he places some artillery on the heights overlooking the town. You know, again, indefensible. You got artillery on the high ground, you're pretty much screwed. So the garrison sees this, and all 12,000 of them look at each other and say, we surrender. <laughs> so Jackson, he's like, alrighty, most of you, we're going back to Lee. We've done our job here. We did good. Uh, AP Hill, you take your division, you, you know, occupy the town. Cool, cool, cool. You're good. So McLennan, he takes 87,000 men and he slow marches them in pursuit. He gets to Fredericksburg on the 13th of September. And when he gets there, two of his soldiers discover a copy of a document that was lost. Oh, I'm sure it was nothing, nothing too important. Maybe a requisition request. Or just the detailed campaign plans of Lee's army. Oh, is that all? Yeah, it was General Order Number 191. And they found these, and they found it wrapped around three cigars. Well, thank goodness they decided not to light up as soon as they found it. <laughs> so this order indicated that Lee had divided his army and was dispersed to different places around there, which means that they could isolate and defeat each one in turn. McLennan, in his... McClellanness? Yeah, McClellanness, that's a good way to put it. He waits 18 hours before deciding to take advantage of this intelligence. Folks, you can't see it. That was a facepalm. And these 18 hours almost did not allow him to take advantage of this. So that night, the Army of the Potomac moves towards South Mountain, where elements of the Army of the Northern Virginia waits in a defensive posture for the Mountain Pass. This would become the Battle of South Mountain. And on September 14th, the Confederacy was driven back by McLennan. I know, he actually won something. It's amazing. What? Well, I mean, he was kind of playing with cheat codes. That's true. And it was also 87,000 versus a third of Lee's army. And this left McLennan in a position to destroy Lee's army before it could maneuver back into one army again. Now, Lee, he is quite surprised. He's like, when the hell did McLennan get aggressive? Wouldn't you like to know? And, you know, he learns that his General Order number 191, you know, has been compromised by a Confederate sympathizer. He's, he's now frantic and starts moving to concentrate his army. He does not want to give up his invasion just yet because, you know, Jackson had not technically completed his capture of Harper's Ferry yet. And so he was like, if we give up now, my men's morale is going to And it's been really high lately. We want to keep it that way. So he decides to make a stand 
at Sharpsburg in Maryland instead. So September 16th rolls around. And McLennan, he confronts Lee. The coward became aggressor and confronts Lee near Sharpsburg, who was defending a line to the west of Antium Creek. And at the dawn on September 17th, the Battle of Antium begins. Major General Joseph Hooker and his men, they mount a huge, huge, powerful assault on Lee's left flank. And, you know, attacks and counterattacks, they keep sweeping back and forth across the Miller cornfield into the woods near the Dunker Church. And Union assaults against the sunken road eventually get through the Confederate center. But for some reason, the Union did not press the advantage. So in each case, the Confederate was able to reinforce themselves from the right flank, which, you know, prevented the breakthrough that McLennan kept trying to do. And of course, McLennan, he refuses to release his reserves to press, which would have pressed the advantage and gotten right through the lines. So that afternoon, Burnside takes his guys across a stone bridge over the creek and rolls up to the Confederate right flank. This is when A.P. Hill's division arrives from Harper's Ferry and counterattacks, driving Burnside back and leaving and, and pretty much saving Lee's army from destruction. Now, Lee is outnumbered two to one, but he commits his entire force. That seems, uh, unnecessarily aggressive and foolhardy. Lee's always been aggressive and foolhardy. That's part of his success. Hmm. Yeah, and McLennan, he sends in less than three quarters of his. And this allows Lee to shift his brigades and concentrate on each individual Union assault. So at the end of all this, there were over 23,000 casualties. On both sides? Yeah. So this remains the bloodiest single day in American history. That is crazy. Yeah. Lee, he orders the, his forces to withdraw across the Potomac into the Shenandoah Valley. And, you know, this is tactically inconclusive thanks to, you guessed it, McLennan, because... He went back from being aggressive to a coward again. The, this battle is also considered a strategic victory for the Union. Lee, he, his invasion of Maryland was defeated. But more importantly, President Lincoln was able to use this as an opportunity to announce the Immaculation Proclamation, which diminished the prospect of European powers intervening in the war on behalf of the Confederacy. Yep, now that uh, ending slavery was a war aim, pretty much every European nation was like, ooh, so we are literally throwing our lot in pro-slavery than if we support the Confederacy. So that was the Northern Virginia and Maryland. All right, so next week we're going to come over and 
talk about the Fredericksburg and Chancellorville area of operations. So before we go, though, we are going to honor one of our heroes, our fallen angels, with our partnership with HeroCards.us. We are going to honor today Chief Petty Officer Matthew J. Bourgeois. He was assigned to SEAL Naval Special Warfare Development Group. He received a Bronze Star, Defense Victorious Service Medal, and a Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was March 28, 2002. He was killed in action near Kandahar, Afghanistan. He was 35. So Matthew came from a military family. His great-grandfather fought in World War I. And his grandfather had a 30-year career in the U.S. Navy. Oh, my. And his uncle served in the Vietnam War. And his brother-in-law was also a Navy SEAL. So he was born in Illinois on January 18th, 1967. And he moved with his family to Tallahassee in Florida as a young boy. And according to his family, Matthew was a avid deer hunter and fisherman. He graduated from Leon High School in Tallahassee, and he joined the Florida National Guard in 1984 and served until he enlisted in the Navy in August of 1987, training as a hospital corpsman. In 1988, he began the rigorous training required of a Navy SEAL, which included underwater demolition and SEAL training at Naval Amphibious Base Coronado in California and also basic parachute training in Fort Benning in Georgia. During his first assignment with SEAL Team 2, he was deployed to the Persian Gulf in support of Operation Desert Storm in 1991. And in 1995, he returned to Coronado, California, for four years serving in and training with SEAL Team 1. In May of 1999, he joined the Naval Special Warfare Development Group and was stationed at Naval Air Station Dam Neck, annex in virginia beach virginia and he was promoted to chief petty officer in september of 2001 just before that he and his wife michelle welcomed a son whom they named matthew jr matthew and his naval special warfare development group deployed to afghanistan as part of operation enduring freedom their assignment was to help ensure al-qaeda could no longer train or launch strikes from Afghanistan following their attack on the World Trade Center. You know, New York, September 11, 2001. Right. On March 28, 2002, Matthew and his fellow SEALs were on a refresher training exercise near Tarmac Farms, which was an abandoned Al-Qaeda terrorist training camp, and former home to Osama bin Laden, which was near Kandahar, Afghanistan. He was killed in a ground explosion. When Americans first went into Afghanistan to go after the Al-Qaeda terrorists, an estimated 10 million landmines were set or were still in place from, you know, the 20 years of conflict that had already happened there. Mm -hmm. Matthew had been expected to return home within a month, and his son was just seven months old. In a statement, Matthew's wife described her husband, quote, He had perseverance and determination, which made him excellent at his job. He was always striving to be the best. Hence, this made him an outstanding seal. 
Matt knew it was a difficult and dangerous job, but that never deterred him. He loved being a SEAL and working with his teammates, no matter in what circumstances. Chief Petty Officer Matthew J. Baronois is honored on the memorial wall at the Navy SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida. We thank you. All right, Stephen, you want to take it away? All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the U.S. Navy History Podcast. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show, we'd love for you to leave a comment or a review. And if you'd like, we can even leave it on the air. If you'd like to uh, engage with us more directly, we do have a Discord now, linked in the show notes. You know, we are more than happy to have conversations ranging from history to just shooting the breeze. If you'd like to tweet at us, you can reach us with at USNHistoryPod. Our email is usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And I don't believe there's any other way to get a hold of us. But if I'm forgetting anything, Captain, please remind me. No, email, Twitter, if it's still around, Discord. I think that uh, covers the trifecta. (laughs) All right. And with that, we wish you fair winds and following seas. See you next week, folks. Goodbye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Departing.